I'm the luckiest guy in the world to be able to have done this the last 27 years. I always say, there's a lot of things I could be doing with my time. I'm glad I got to do this, and it just is so fulfilling. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. So welcome to the fourth and final episode in our series featuring Mike Burroughs, reflecting on the history of the organization he has served for the past 27 years as CEO. And knowing that this would be the last in the series, I wanted Mike to tell the story of the Zero Mental Health Symposium that started in 1995, just a few years after he was named CEO in 1993. Of course, the symposium story is powerful and a remarkable part of the association's history. But another reason I saved the symposium for the last episode is because the conference themes touch on so many of the ideas and concepts that Mike has championed all these years. So you'll hear stories about the symposium, but then we use those themes to touch on a variety of topics, including mobile medical intervention team, criminal justice reform, advocacy, and his successor as CEO, the brilliant Terry White. In addition, this was my opportunity for Mike to explain why he's always said Mikeisms, like the association is a high wire act with no net, why we should use judo instead of karate, and my personal favorite, we build the bike as we ride it. Okay, let's get this history lesson started. The mental health download starts now. Okay, Mike, before we get started, I just want to say thank you. You know why, uh, but thank you. Okay, so let's start this episode by you sharing the story of the Zero Mental Health Symposium, which, by the way, audience, is going to be September 30th through October 2nd, 2020, all completely online. And all the details can be found online at zerosymposium.org. Okay, Mike, take it away. The Zero Mental Health Symposium has become a, an iconic, uh, well-known, not just statewide or regionally, but national mental health conference, or we, as we call it, as a symposium. I was there at the first one, and I'll be at the one in 2020 this year, uh, and hopefully in the future I'll be attending them beyond my time and my tenure as CEO of Mental Health Association Oklahoma after this year. But, it, you know, it starts through Maxine and Jack Zero and Gail. We had gotten to know friends and and people up at the Minnegar Foundation at that time was in Topeka, Kansas. Of course, it's down in Houston and Baylor University now. But in those days, the Minninger Foundation, this iconic worldwide known psychiatric mental health hospital and clinic there. And at the time, Jack was on the board of directors of the Minninger Foundation and in Topeka, and he and Maxine connected us up and, and Gail with some of the, the people involved there, and they came down to Tulsa, and we went up to Topeka and met with them and, and kind of kicked out ideas. And a woman who, I'm sorry, I can't recall her name at the time, she was really kind of their marketing director, and she really wanted to connect us up with some of the pharmaceutical companies. And we create, we had, we had set this meeting day, and we were going to work on this concept all day. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know what we wanted to plan. And these people, I went out to the airport to pick up the lady from flying in from Kansas City from the from the Menninger Foundation, and then these pharmaceutical reps. And when I got to the airport that day out here at Tulsa International, everybody was standing around the TV. And I went over. I was waiting on the flight to come in. And in those days, you could go back on the on the concourses when you were there to pick up people. You could actually pick people, meet them right at the gate. In those days, pre nine eleven, 
and everybody was standing around the TV, one of the TVs. And what happened? Oh, there was this really horrible explosion in downtown Oklahoma City. Oh my God, it's terrible. It must be a gas explosion. So I picked him up. We went back and we began, we went upstairs to the old Boulder office and began to work on this idea of what eventually became the, the Zero Mental Health Symposium. And then in the middle of doing then planning that, we discovered and learned with everybody else that it was actually a bomb. And it was the day of the Oklahoma City bombing. Then after that day was over, those guys all get on the airplanes and flew home. And, and you know, this is just on a personal note. I'm from Kansas originally. Those people that know me know that. And, you know, I used to say, I'm embarrassed about this now. I used to say, well, I'm not an Oklahoma and I'm a Kansan, but I'm a Tulsa. I'd say I'm a Tulsa, but I'm not an Oklahoma. And the day of the bombing, the next day, the next couple of days after the bombing, everybody in the state had this incredible awareness and realization that in some way, shape, or form, every Oklahoman was somehow connected to that building, the people in that building in some way, shape, or form. You might not know anybody in that building, but you know somebody who knew somebody was in that building. And I never, I made my mind up on that day. I said, from now on, I'm an Oklahoman. And because the realization that we really are all connected, that it isn't six degrees of separation, it's at most two degrees of separation and often one degree of separation. And we, the Mental Association, began to struggle. What do we want to do? What do we want to do? And I know that uh, my old, I want to do a shout out to my uh, my good buddy, Jim Lyle, who formerly worked at Community Service Council. He and I found each other early, early on in, in my tenure. He had been there at Community Service Council already for a long time. And Jim and I began to collaborate and come up and work on all kinds of different things over the years. But one of the things we did is we developed a uh, brochure to uh, help people that we distributed. We went around and equipped trip stores. But anyway, but we did that and helping messages to help people cope with what had happened. I mean, and it was like, a you know, a, a, the old proverbial stone in the pond. And the closer you were to ground zero, the more the impact and the more you were affected. I mean, we've now met many people, survivors of the bombing, you know, that were across the street or downtown and who tell tell us now that they still can't hardly drive by the memorial or they will avoid downtown because they're still the post-traumatic stress disorder is so strong from the day of the bombing and the aftermath that they they still have issues related to. But what was our role? Well, we did the local thing, but also we started getting a call uh, from the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services and some of the other American Red Cross, uh, Salvation Army, some of the other first responders that they were really kind of burning out a lot of the mental health professionals that, that were just really, the system was strained. And they had people trying from clinicians trying to come over from Tulsa to help, but they didn't know who they were. And they didn't know, well, who is this person and how do we trust them? And, but because of our role at Mental Health Association and Community Service Council, we knew a lot of those people. So the Mental Health Association actually became kind of a clearinghouse. And so we were connected up and they would tell us in Oklahoma City, they would tell us what they needed. They need, we need three licensed mental health professionals to be over to at the at ground zero on this and such this during these days on this shift or whatever it may be. And so we began to put out an appeal, call people. I don't think we emailed them yet. I don't think email was there yet, but we called people we knew. We had call those days we had calling lists. 
And so we would call different people and everybody said, absolutely, we have to do it. So we became a clearinghouse because people we knew and knew they had their license and they were appropriate and we would give them their names and they would drive over. And so that was the thing that we did during the bombing. And of course, uh, our experience here in Tulsa, now that we've spent more time in Oklahoma City, the people in Oklahoma City. The clinicians, the families, the the whole the first responders, the whole experience there, completely different than here in Tulsa. Although we were greatly affected. I, I still remember on one of my many pilgrimages to Washington, D.C. and to our national organization, I remember being there right after, not too long after the bombing and walking around Washington, D.C. and seeing restaurant and bar after one after another, having a sign up in their window, something to the effect, Oklahoma City, we love you. And I mean, I was just blown away by that. I mean, I'm like, wow. And of course, a lot of that came circled around after 9-11. When it went back, it came, we were able to contribute, particularly in the Washington, D.C. area. We were able to actually, from our experiences in the aftermath of the Oklahoma City bombing, we were able actually to contribute. And Jim Lyle and I in particular made a trip to Washington, D.C. to consult with people there in Arlington, Virginia, people involved with the Pentagon, our national organization, because we had experience. Although in hindsight, we didn't know all the things that we know now, but we they looked to us here in Oklahoma as you guys have been through this, help us out here. And that was really an amazing thing to, to see that, uh, one, it was a great way to give and share from our experiences and our understanding and our, our growth through all that and our struggles, and then be able to, to contribute and help them during their time of need. Very powerful. Those were very powerful moments. And the Mental Health Association, again, I'm still using it in Tulsa because it was still known at that time as Mental Health Association in Tulsa. That was a incredible moment and something that I know Jim feels the same way and the Community Service Council feels the same way. That was very, very meaningful to us that that we could find a small way not only to contribute to the aftermath and the recovery from the Oklahoma City bombing, but then take a lot of that experience. And we actually got to help out in the aftermath of 9-11, particularly in the Washington, D.C. area, metro area. What we wanted the Zero Mental Health Symposium to be was be as cutting edge and anticipatory, to be sensitive, to be aware, to be really paying attention. What in mental health is up over the horizon and that each year we wanted it to be a different topic, a different focus. And that's a little unusual. I mean, there's there's a lot of conferences that do that, but a lot of times the formatting for a lot of conferences is very much the same. And with this, we really wanted to make sure that we did that. People wonder, how do you do it? Karen LaPlante has been just one of the absolute stalwart linchpin people in the planning and development and the execution of the Zero Mental Health Symposium. And now, of course, Joe Beth Hammond works with her closely, but other people um, have worked with us in the Department of Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services has been from the very beginning a huge partner, greatly appreciated. Uh, all we want to do is break even, but present a stellar mental health education information. And by the way, a lot of conferences are focused in on mental health professionals. The Zero Symposium is more inclusive than that. It's not only focuses in on mental health professionals, it does do that, but we always want it to be where people who are affected by a mental health-related issue or substance abuse or homelessness or incarceration, whatever form of recovery they live in, we want them to always feel welcome. We've always had the Zero family, God bless them, they've always provided scholarships so we could make sure that people who might not be able to afford to come 
can come if they want to come. And then we also wanted family members with have loved ones living with in recovery in some shape or form. We wanted them to always feel like they were a part of it. And I think we've overall done a pretty good job with that. I mean, I'm never satisfied, but over the years, Ann and Henry, Maxine and Jack's foundation have provided us scholarship money where we could scholarship in people who couldn't afford to come, people affected by mental health issues, family members affected by mental health, mental illness, and and then some students. So students sometimes who wanted to come so to make sure that they could come too. So we've always done that. And I'm always, I'm really, really proud of that. But I want to take note of a few of the years. Uh, And one of the years I want to note 1998, opening doors, opening minds, taking disability issues into the clinical setting. We were so proud of that because the the physical disability community, the developmental disability communities were all invited to be a part of that. And these individuals with physical uh, and developmental disabilities, they have mental health issues too, and their families do. And so we brought that in and, and I got so many thank yous from those communities. I've never forgotten that, man. I've always appreciated that. And then we went on and each year it was something different. And then in, in 2001, one of the, uh, as everyone remembers, that was the same I think 9-11, was that on a Tuesday? Did 9-11, was that a Monday or Tuesday? I can't remember, uh, day of the week. I think it was a Tuesday, but I could be wrong on that. In 2001, that was the same week that year of the Zero Symposium on Thursday and Friday. And as you remember, the flights were all grounded. Our our speakers were coming in. And the departmental health really, really uh, stepped up and really helped us with that. And we were able to get people in. Some of the speakers couldn't come in, but we were able to find some people who could drive in out of Texas and in parts, contiguous states around us and get here and be. So we were able to have the conference. And so that was a very, very unusual year. And the staff and their volunteers being able to pivot and really do that well, that was fantastic. Then in 2004, who in the world are these guys from Mental Health Association in that time in Tulsa? What do you want to do a national conference? Well, by 2004, we realized then that we were really on the cutting edge and innovating on the development of affordable housing, permanent supported housing, if you will. And we partnered with Habitat for Humanity International. We went down there and Judy Alexander and and Wendy Fraley, uh, when I went, all went down there and met Wendy in those days was we had hired her as a, for this national conference as a consultant. That's where we first got acquainted with Wendy. And we went down to America's Georgia and met with Habitat. And once we had Habitat for, Inter- Habitat for Humanity International uh, on board as a national partner, we had instant street cred on the national level. And we did this and we had like I don't know, as I remember, 400 people who came, like 36 states who came into Tulsa, Oklahoma, for exploring innovative approaches to housing with people with mental illness. And by the way, one of the people that came and presented that conference was Samson Barris, Dr. Samson Barris, who coined the whole and developed the whole concept around housing first. So he came in. And then we did different things. 2007, learning differences, recognizing we didn't call it learning disabilities. We called it learning differences because the whole idea around the conference was that people Kids, adults, teens, children, they all learn differently. And sometimes educational systems, if you don't fit in that cookie cutter, you can't make it. And it's really incumbent upon us. People learn different. And the whole message in the conference was it's incumbent upon us to learn how to address those differences and find the keys that unlock 
because that person we're working with can learn. The limitations are on our side of the fence in terms of how we're teaching, how we present the information that doesn't, they can't process it in that way. We have to find out how to present it and go about it in a way where they can demonstrate just how unbelievably brilliant they are in in reality. And that was in a battle against stigma, people that have learning differences. So that was a big year. Then we went on in 2012. What was wrong with us? We decided once again, to do a national con- have it be a national conference. And by the way, by now, Matt, it's growing from a regional conference to a national conference. Once we did it as a national conference, we had mailing addresses, we had reach all over the country. Even though it's been primarily most years a regional statewide conference, we've always had people come from all over, you know, come all over the country. But these were times when we we intentionally made a national conference. And in 2012, we did that in partnership with Mental Health America. And that was a big deal. They had decided they wanted their national conference every other year, which they've now abandoned that, but that's fine. They wanted to come out of D.C. and go out to one of the local affiliates. And it's interesting because when we first applied to do it, we weren't selected. They selected another affiliate. We were like, oh, okay, we're going to do our Zero Symposium anyway. And then that fell through. They called us back and said, hey, you remember that? Was that still an option for us? And so, so we did that. It worked. It was wonderful. People from Mental Health America, from the affiliate network, came in from all over the country, as well as other people. And and it was a very wonderful national conference from housing to recovery. And a lot of people think, oh, Mike does all this. No, no, no. I I play my role. But this was Karen and the volunteers and now Joe Beth with Karen. Those guys are professionals. And to be able to do that. Then 2017 was a big year, challenging injustice discrimination. We had Dr. Cornell West in, and that was a big deal. I think we were ahead of our time. I mean, not that we shouldn't have been always challenging injustice and discrimination, but to do it actually as a national conference. And of course, this year, 2020, healing from historical trauma, and that's going to be a big deal. We're really excited about that in partnership with the National Race Massacre Commission here in town. We're excited, and we're going to deal with that as a historical trauma, but all kinds of racial injustices, discrimination, prejudice, things that people have uh, suffered. Oklahoma City bombing aftermath, healing from that trauma. We're touching a lot of different things this year in 2020. But the Zero Symposium is something we're so proud of. And we've had national speakers come in here, Matt, and they've told us over and over again. We we, we used to kind of get amazed by it. We just kind of now we just like, yeah, we, we know. But they've said, hey, I speak and I attend conferences all over the country and internationally. This one doesn't take a backseat to any of them if it's not one of the best run conferences in the country. And we've heard that over and over again. But it's really become a place where professionals can get their CEUs every year, that, that we can come together as a mental health community, if you will. Individuals affected, family members, providers, advocates, that we can come on common ground and learn and bring state-of-the-art ideas that are currently going on in Oklahoma, but also that we would bring in from outside with national speakers. By the way, NIMH, National Institute for Mental Health, great partner. SAMHSA's been a partner. NAMI's been a partner. I've already mentioned Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services. State Department of Health has been a partner. The Department of Rehabilitative Services has been a partner. Blue Cross and Blue Shield has been a major partner. You know, the Warren Foundation is in Laureate, Laureate Institute for Brains and Research, major partners. Everybody loves the Zero Symposium this year, of course, with COVID-19. It's going to be virtual. 
If you haven't been to a symposium, attend one. And this year, by the way, the tuition is a lot lower because our expenses, doing it virtually, our expenses are a lot lower. So this is a great year to go and participate. And I'm going to be facilitating two different breakouts, by the way. And uh, and ironically, one of them is on the recovery of the Oklahoma City bombing, which is where it all started. So I'll end there with that, Matt. But it's it's been an amazing thing to watch. And now we have 700, 800 people attend that every year. And it's been an amazing from 100 people on a Saturday to seven or 800 people over the course of a two-day conference. So it's been something that I hope that the listeners are as proud of as, as we are. Most definitely. As we're looking at this timeline of Zero Symposium themes, you know, it really encompasses your entire career with the association. As I look at these themes, there are so many things that remind me of your work. And this is our final episode of this series of you looking back on the association's history, at least for now. But there are still some things that we haven't touched on. And I think some of these themes will spur some stories that I really want you to tell. But first, uh, I really want one, one story that I, I want you to tell is you have many Mikeisms, but one of my favorites and the one I use constantly to explain the association's mission and our work and how we, our culture is that we build the bike as we ride it. That is classic Mike bros. Where did that come from? How long have you been saying that and explain what that means to people and explain, give an instance of us <laughs> building the bike as we ride it, which we often do. When you've grown from five employees in 93 to 185 and now statewide, that's, you have to take risk. I was telling my son, without risk, there is no gain. Somewhere, you, you don't want to take foolish risks, but risk is always a part of it's true in business, investment. Anything that you do that's worthwhile requires at some level, you've got to measure out and count your cost and look at your potential return on investment. But at some point in time, you got to jump off the diving board there into the deep end of the pool. And so there's risk. So so it kind of grows from that. Now, where I got it, I can't really tell you. I don't I don't really remember that growing up. I think it came about somehow. I don't know. It, it sort of emerged during early in my tenure at, at, as CEO of Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm not sure uh, where I glommed onto it. It was interesting because well, first we'd say, well, how are we going to do this? Uh, you know, we'd say, we're going to take this on. We don't know what we're doing. So it became, in some respects, Matt, it's kind of we got to be a little bit of a rationalization. Yeah, yeah, I know. But, you know, that's us. We build we, we build a, a ride a bike while we're building it. But then we used to sometimes we'd say, well, this is far beyond that. Now we're uh, flying an airplane while we're trying to build it, you know. And it really felt more as over time. I used to also say the association is a high wire act with no net. I mean, the risks that we've taken. We're good on that high wire. We know what we're doing. But make no mistake about it, with cash flow issues and funding challenges and risk and liability issues, you put all those risk things in there, you know, the, the association of what we do, the work we, we do, it's a higher wire act and there's no there's no net. And, and so it's been that way for years, but you have to take risk and be able to do that. And so a lot of times I've always been comfortable and, you know, this doesn't sound, man, I'm going to have people, they're going to, they're going to like. Uh, some people out there know me, they're going to laugh. And then the other people are going to like cringe. Business majors, MBA, they're going to, they're going to, you know, laugh or flinch or roll their eyes or whatever. You've got to be able to be willing to sometimes it's I call, making it up as you go. I, I don't know where it comes from in me. I've, 
I do most of my work, Matt, that I've done here as a CEO is I, I there's no, you know, there's no book for a lot of this. There's no, there's nothing, you can't go look it up. The association that gets lost is because we're a nonprofit. We are entrepreneurs and we have always had an entrepreneurial spirit and we've always been willing to take risks, not stupid ones. We count our costs. We do our homework. We study and look at budgets and talk. We're always having to think about money and which I hate to think about money, but that's just the reality of the way it is. But a lot of times we've kind of made it up as we go. I I don't apologize for that. I'm kind of proud of it because that's how we got here, Matt. Uh, we didn't. If you just sat around and plan all the time, and I love Bill Packard, and we talked about earlier, he was a planner, but I kind of work different. I'm kind of more induct- he, inductive approach uh, where you gather ideas and then you form them in to say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We've had a lot of success with that. And man, what a what an incredible opportunity I've had to have a board that over the years that supported me and supported us in these endeavors. I'm sure a lot of times we had board members over the years that probably were going, what are they doing now? But in the end, look what's happened. And uh, we're all so proud of it. And, you know, this we feel like we're a part of this. And, and then you think about it, all we've done, I always say I'm a very positive person person, but you talk about Mike-isms. Here's a Mike-ism, but I don't, I don't claim to own this one. I, everybody's always focused in on that glass of water at the half full part. I'm like, okay, yeah, I noticed there's that, but what about that half empty part? And I, I, we've always said, how do we fill that glass all the way up? And yeah, we, we don't, we don't sit around on our laurels. We don't live in the past and go, oh, God, remember back in the day? Although that's what we're doing, a part of these reflections, but it's always the arrows always been pointed towards the future, and that's true now. And Terry coming on, uh, Terry White coming on to replace me, she'll be very forward looking, bring lots of new energy in there, and do great and great things in her leadership role. I'm just going to get to watch from a distance and just marvel at it after she takes over, and it will continue on. And it's so the work is so important. Well, you mentioned Terry and Terry has, I've been around for nine years and it's, it seems like every year she has been one of our featured speakers introducing some of our keynotes. So looking back on, you know, hearing Terry explain the state of mental health every year, what are some of those when you think about her legacy of what she has brought to mental health in Oklahoma? Well, I, in fairness to Dr. Terry Klein, I have to bring Terry into that. I mean, departmental health was in a bad way, and it was actually, there was talk about it being sucked up into the State Department of Health, and then Terry Klein arrived, and that really turned around, and Terry hired Terry White, and then when Terry Klein, George W. Bush, tabbed him to come up and head up SAMHSA, you know, that opened that opportunity for Terry to step in that. We advocated for that. We were, we advocated with their board. We advocated with the governor's office and she was subsequently named and Terry Klein and her both really brought new energy and new vision to mental health and helped the budget stabilize. Terry's a very forward thinker. Uh, community mental health services. She's been a tireless fighter for increased funding. I mean, it's been hard row. We don't, nobody, everybody understands that. But I think there were times, years there where other state agencies' budgets were going being cut and departmental health was going up and at least a little bit. 
you know, she's uh, incredible legacy there. She's going to do great. I, hey, I, I'm, I'm so honored that it takes a Terry White that they're going to replace me with somebody of her capacity. Wow, man, I'm, I'm not, I'm not in her league. Believe me, she's in a whole league of her own, and I'm, I'm, I'm just little old Mike Bros from Liberal Kansas. She's the real thing, and she's going to do great. Nice. Okay, one of your favorite Brosisms is uh, using judo. Tell me, tell me what that means to you and why you use that. Yeah, people have asked me, or I've, I've used that expression, let's not use karate, let's use judo. Karate is a legitimate martial art. It's, it's the, it involves force against force, primarily. Now, judo is a completely different art form. It's where you basically take the energy that's coming at you, whatever that energy may be, and then you sort of take that energy and you steer it where you want it to go using the energy that the other entity, the other force is using coming at you with and that you sometimes it involves a little sidestep and then to just basically then guide them where they're trying to go anyway, but to steer them in a way you want it to go. So it's a completely different mindset metaphor is to use judo. Matt, have I ever tried to use karate or got into a force meeting force interplay with different people? I always say I've pissed off just about everybody in town at least once and a bunch of them more than once. So one of your prime jobs is you are our number one advocate at the Capitol. You're our number one voice in the media and you've advocated for a remarkable change in our in our state that it's actually come to fruition, especially with criminal justice reform, homelessness, promoting mental health. When you look back, what are some of your big advocacy successes? Well, that's a great question. I think one of the very, very first things I got involved in was at, at the time when I first came, there was a big movement to split the Department of Mental Health and Substance Services into two separate state agencies. And that was kind of cool. That was my first year I was there. And, and we were able to preserve that. We said, look, people have mental illness and they have substance abuse and to separate them off and just create another state agency. That doesn't make any sense. We were able to basically finally defeat that and that did not did not happen. I think the other is mental health parity. Uh, I mean, we had a partial parity bill here in Oklahoma and I had a great chance to work with Bill Warren Jr., Henry Zero, Jack Zero on that. And they were those three iconic men in our in our community and in our state were appalled that that we couldn't achieve mental that that if you have a mental health issue that your insurance coverage isn't on on parity uh, comparable to your physical health care and it wasn't even close and so we got a or we were one of the early early states to get and I really think there was Republican state house members faced down their governor to get that not only it passed three years in a row but Finally, when, when Bill Warren and when Jack Zero and Henry Zero got involved with it, then we were able to not only get it passed, but passed by a veto-proof margin in the governor of that time went ahead and signed it into law. And then now, of course, we know we have a, a federal parity bill, by the, by the way, that gets violated all the time. I think that's something that maybe in my next iteration, maybe I'll get to work on that a little bit. I think Mox, the old now, which is Copes. Before that, it was through Parkside Mobile Outreach Crisis Services. Mox was shot out to Bob Altoff and Jim Lyle on all the work the three of us did on that together. We were able to get funding for that when people told us there was no possible way that's going to happen. We did. I think that some of the NIMBY stuff that I talked about earlier, that we stood up and we said people have a right to live in the community. 
and they have a right to for a, a safe, affordable, decent place to live. And that battle continues, but we made great strides there. You see increased funding for mental health over those years, Department of Mental Health, ourselves, NAMI, we've all been others. We've been advocates for that over the years, and we've had successes there. And so, I mean, there's been a lot. I mean, there's different types of advocacy, too. I would say there's three types of advocacy. There's advocacy where we empower people to have their own voice and develop their own voice. We do that all the time to get what they need, whatever that may be, uh, for their services. And then there's like, collaborative advocacy where we we work with someone side by side based on their need. And then there's advocacy on on, the, on a group's behalf. Sometimes some groups, people living uh, with mental illness, a lot of times their, their mental illness takes so much of their attention, their voice gets lost and they don't have opportunity. So in those instances, we, the Mental Health Association of Oklahoma, we, have, we step in and sometimes represent their voice. So they have a voice. I've gone to Capitol Hill. This is the first year in 27 years I've not made my annual trek up to Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. to talk to the Oklahoma delegation about all things mental health. Again, a shout out to Monty Moeller. Monty Moeller and I used to terrorize those offices on those visits. And in the state, you know, over at the state house and working with uh, both Democrats and Republicans. And and by the way, this isn't a, a really a partisan issue. I think different parties might look at it different, but mental illness affects it. You don't care what you're party affiliation is, it affects, it's kind of like COVID-19, it doesn't really care uh, what your party is, it, it'll, it, it can affect anybody. It, it, it's a non-discriminator. And then a lot of the advocacy work we do with the mayor's office, with the county commissioners, with the police department, with the sheriff's office, that's advocacy too. And we've done that and had great successes with that. But we're always trying to do it in a way where we build a friend. I don't need any more enemies. I need friends. And we've always tried to do our business with dignity. I've failed many times. People are listening out there going, yeah, well, what about that time? And I get that. I apologize. And, and, but I think that we've done doing it, trying to do it always the right way. And I'm proud of that, that we, the association, we've always tried to be honorable in our business while at the same time, not letting our personal relationships with people get in the way of the businesses at hand. And that's advocating on people on behalf of people affected by mental health, substance abuse, incarceration, homelessness, and other mental health care needs as they as they presented themselves. So that's something I think from an advocacy standpoint, I'm really proud of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's get back to some of these themes. So I'm looking at uh, this list of themes and three separate themes have the word innovative. And there's another one that has innovations. And, you know, when I think of your legacy, Mike, I think of innovator that you've really pushed people to think about innovations in ways maybe they never have. So I want you to give me some examples of some of those innovative ways. You built the bike as you rode it and and you brought in the community partners to help make that possible. What are some of those real shining examples of that? Yeah, that that's a great topic, man. I mean, innovation and, you know, so what's the opposite of innovation? Well, the opposite of innovation is I call it why do we do it that way? Well, cause we've always done it that way. And if if what we're doing, we're not getting the outcomes, maybe we need to step back and think of another way that we could do it differently. People that are mentally ill, untreated, have substance abuse issues, they're scared, they're lonely, they're paranoid from symptoms. You know, you have to go to them. You have to find them. You have to. And, you know, one of the things in criminal justice reform for a long time, Matt, I was very, very 
almost ashamed that I knew that mentally ill people were getting put in the jails and the prisons at a high rate. And that's been now, you know, it's well documented. But for a long, long time, I sort of kind of ignored that. And then it just, it hit a tipping point in my mind. Like, we got to do something about this. I didn't know what I was going to do. Then one day I get a call from the sheriff and he said, well, I want to build these mental health pods and I want your support. And I said, Sheriff, I'll support you on one condition. One is our goal is for no one to be in there. And two, I expect you to work with us to help keep as many people out of there as very possible. And he said, no argument there. And so we supported that. I didn't actually think the voters would approve it. They did. We don't want people in those mental health pods inside the jail, but to to the point, people with mental illness. I just consulted the family the other day who had a, a gentleman called me, had a mentally ill nephew who in the jail and trying to figure out how to get him out of there into the treatment side of things. But if you have to be in there, we did not like the idea of uh, untreated people with mental illness and untreated mental illness being in these open pods. And so we supported Sheriff Clans in that. And I caught a lot of heck for that. People get, got around. Mike Bros wants to put all the mentally ill people in jail. That was never true. I had to answer that time and time again. But it did give me a chance to explain my position, and that, which ultimately became our position as Mental Health Association. And people got that. They go like, okay, okay, I won't say listen to me, heard me out. But, but I think our partners with the Tulsa Police Department, with Tulsa County Sheriff's Office, Oklahoma County Sheriff's Office, Oklahoma City Police Department, we have made great partnership, of course, with the Fire Department, Michael Baker. We've mentioned that already. But so criminal justice reform, it's evolved. That It started with the jail pump, but we've moved out to now it's about how do we all work together convening our par- us and our partners and engaging the legal criminal justice system to keep nonviolent offenders out of the criminal justice system. They need treatment, not punishment. And in that that for a long time, Democrats and Republicans in the state of Oklahoma ran on three strikes and you're out and tough on crime. Terry's White's legacy, her smart on crime. We totally, the association totally supported a whole concept about let's be smart on crime. Locking up mentally ill, nonviolent offenders in jails and prisons is asinine. And there's nothing there. There's no outcomes. It's very difficult to provide treatment to people in jail. And so the whole idea around our criminal justice program, and I want to mention the Hardesty Foundation, who's been, and others, been incredible funders and supporters of our criminal justice reform. Shout out there to Michelle Hardesty and to Dana Wilkes and their family in, in, in the Hardesty family. And, you know, uh, it's let's keep people out of the jail. We're not talking about them not being accountable for laws that have been violated. There, there's accountability. But let's have that accountability be in the community with their families. Let's keep their families together. Let's help them get treatment. Let's help them get employment. Let's help them get a place to live. And then they can become self-sustainable or have a chance for it. And by the way, the outcomes are uh, better and cost to the taxpayer is like minuscule. The, the worst outcomes at the highest cost are incarceration. That's been demonstrated over and over and over again. Bad outcomes, high, high cost. It costs a lot of money to lock human beings up in cages. And so not to say that people who commit violent crimes... We're, we're not saying everybody, uh, there aren't people that need to be separated from the rest of us, that those people do exist. And unfortunately, there are too many of them. But there's a lot of people where we've got into trouble as a tax base, taxpayers, as well as outcomes is that locking up non-offenders, people with addiction issues, substance abuse issues, locking them up and, and putting them in cages rather than holding them accountable 
to get the treatment that they need, to get better, to get stabilized, to become real productive members of the community and give them every opportunity and amount of support we can do for that. That's criminal justice reform, Matt. That's what our criminal justice reform department is all about. And then recognizing that we have all these people out there, Matt, that we really recognize for a long time. You know, even if they, we have people out there who have co-occurring disorders. We haven't really talked about that, but there were symposiums that are that dealt with or zero months that dealt with with co-occurring disorders. What are those? Well, typically for our population that we're interested in, it's a combination of mental illness symptoms and self-medication and that that sometimes evolves into for some people, not everybody, but some people, it evolves into addiction serious addiction issues. We're all recognizing that people have physical health issues. They have mental health issues. They have substance abuse issues. How do we treat the whole person? In partnership with the the William K. Warren Foundation, we developed with their help, and there were others that have contributed also, but they have to a great extent, doing mobile medical outreach to those people in our housing and on the, now on the streets and around the city with our physician assistant and her nurse and case manager. And for the, the return on the dollar is amazing. And by the way, Morning Crest Foundation was also a big supporter of that. I want to do a, a shout out to those guys who do incredible work and support incredible work here in the community. We hired a physician assistant, Whitney Phillips, and Jackie Souter, the nurse that works with her, and Stephanie, who's the case manager. And, and so now we, we respond, and people out there on the streets, in the shelters, homeless individuals, people in our housing, just because they have a medical problem doesn't mean they're necessarily going to go. And they tend to let, let things go until they have to be admitted. And now suddenly, the cost of their care goes up astronomically. A mobile medical intervention team is about prevention. And by the way, Matt, just a, a shout out again, going back to the symposium and we had in 2014, all things prevention. I'd like to say that just about everything we do in some way, shape or form is always moored to the whole concept of prevention. Because if something isn't prevented in the work that we do with this population of people and their families, the chances are that it's going to get worse and it's going to get worse and it's going to get worse. So the earlier anywhere we can move upstream at all and help people and families and intervene, we're saving time and money and heartache or worse for a lot of people. You can just challenge me on this, Matt. How to you know, ask me about anything and I'll say, here's how it, it connects with the whole concept of prevention. So mobile medical, very much so. Criminal justice reform, very much so. Prevention. Street outreach, prevention. And then of course and I want to end here, Matt, is just talking to collaboration, our partners out there in the community. Tulsa Day Center, John 316, Community Service Council, Tulsa Area United Way, United Way of Central Oklahoma, Homeless Alliance, Neighborhood Services Organization, Remerge, Women in Recovery. It goes on and on. I know I'm leaving people out. You know, Booker T. Washington High School, you know, talking about the old listening conferences, all the school systems that participated in our listening conferences that we did over those years. And uh, shout out to Chris Siemens, who did just incredible legwork on, the, on those listening conferences. These are things in our with the Chapman Foundation and Andy Doyle and Donnie Chapman and his wife and bringing us to Colorado Springs and now we have CRT community response team 
police, EMT, the fire department, family and children's services, dealing with people in, in psychiatric crisis three days a week. We hope it's seven days a week, 18 hours a day before long. CARES, bringing CARES out of Colorado Springs. And now the fire department, Mental Health Association, we have people going out that are calling 911 over and over again, but don't have a fire. They don't have a medical emergency. It's just they don't know where to turn for help or following up with those people, getting those people connected to services. I'm the luckiest guy in the world to be able to have done this for the last 27 years. I always say, there's a lot of things I could be doing with my time. I'm glad I got to do this, and it just is so fulfilling. I just can't wait to, when my tenure's done here, going into the years of the future to watch it continue to grow and develop and build on what we've been able to do the last 27 years. I don't want to take a thing away from my predecessors and others before me. Amazing, amazing people, volunteers, staff, students, donors. It takes a community, Matt. We say that like it's a cliche, but it's really true. And, and I, I, it's just been an honor to be a part of it. And I just want to sign off by just thanking all the listeners of the podcast. And thank you for all your contributions. I apologize if I missed mentioning you. Uh, I want to just, George and Phyllis Dotson are on my mind. Just a shout out to them. And, and uh, But I know I'm leaving a lot of a lot of people off that list. And I just my deepest apologies about that. But thanks to everybody. It's been a it's been a heck of a ride.